Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards, sat at home on a comfy sofa. And I'm Will Davis, sat in an empty echoey conference hall in the middle of Texas. Something's gone wrong here. <laughs> we are, for the first time ever, coming to you from opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, which is novel, since we normally record in the same room. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was that one that I tried to record from Chicago 10 episodes ago, episode 16, but even that, we're like, no, no, this is, no. <laughs> but we're going to try. We've got 10 more episodes experience. We're a whole six months on, and it's worth a shot, I guess. Everyone at home gets to enjoy our attempt at being funny and insightful at great distances. But yes, if you pick up on any technical difficulties that affect your listening experience, please forgive us. This is complicated. But you being all the way over there does mean we've got access to some real fresh, right out of the oven news about cancer treatment. Yes. The reason I'm in Texas is uh, I've not just been spirited away by government agents this time. I'm attending the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Not going to peel back the curtain between my job and my real life too much, but I'm here doing my job, talking to people about the breast cancer, the breast cancer they're treating, curing, and it seemed like the kind of stuff I figured more people might want to know about than just the other doctors sat around talking about the breast cancers that they're treating and curing as well. So we're going to do what we can to get the information out there. I've been very careful to select information that will be publicly available as of Sunday afternoon in England because I have stress dreams about embargo release dates. <laughs> this will all go just fine, won't cost me my job or my head or whatever. So I think some of this might be quite relevant to discuss, really. I think, Will, you said you'd seen a study out a few weeks back about the sort of general public knowledge about treatments like chemotherapy? Mm. Cancer is a big and scary ordeal, which one in three people on a global average is faced with at some point in their life. Even more if you look at people whose lives it affects, their family, their friends, their children. And emotional and intellectual readiness to deal with, okay, so here's this cancer that I've got. Here's the subset of that type of cancer, which they think I've got. Here's what can be done about this cell in my body that's gone rogue and has turned into a disease and all the different ways in which I can try dealing with that, depending on the millions, millions and millions of ways in which my DNA might recombine itself to express potential drug targets in the cells that were once my body and now are not. That's it's a lot to deal with. Yeah, and it is important to establish, I think, before we start talking about research, you've listed up for us here that a cancer is a very different disease in each individual person, depending on where it's turned up, uh, you know, what's triggered it, um, the kind of exact tissue it's turned up in. A lot of these do go into quite great detail about the exact types of tumours they're treating. You know, a breast cancer isn't just a breast cancer. No two cancers are the same. Even within your own body, cancer can be very different from one cell to the next to it. The heterogeneity of tumour cells is something which has caused lots of consternation in terms of trying to treat a cancer. You can't come up with a single cancer vaccine for the one cancer gene there is because there isn't. So we should establish how exactly chemotherapy works. It's something I think lots of people aren't necessarily aware of. But if you look at some of the drugs that are used for it, 
you start to get a clue. So, for example, thalidomide has proven itself helpful as a chemotherapy drug. It's famous for other reasons, but those same effects are what you want to see in cancer, the growth limitation. Yeah, essentially the goal of chemotherapy is to poison the tumour before we poison the patient, which is the reason most chemotherapy makes the people on it feel very unwell. It's a shooting gallery with a lot of spray. Yeah, so your primary goals when you're treating someone's cancer with chemotherapy are to get rid of the cancer, stop it reoccurring, and ideally to minimise the negative side effects that the patient experiences. So this paper, increasing the dose density of adjuvant chemotherapy by shortening intervals between courses or by sequential drug administration, significantly reduces both disease recurrence and breast cancer mortality. And EBCTG meta-analysis of 21,000 women in 16 randomised trials. Adjuvant chemotherapy is something you might not have heard about unless you're working with it or uh, going through it. Yes, I certainly haven't. Adjuvant just means given after the primary chemotherapy treatment, the main goal of it being preventing the return of the cancer. So adjuvant chemotherapy, in this case, being that you are treated and then you keep treating. You keep getting the chemotherapy. The typical chemotherapy treatment schedule is every three weeks because, well, that's just kind of the way it's been done. There's not really that many trials to really state that what everyone's doing is the best way of doing it. It's kind of what keeps conferences like this in business, people trying to find a better way of doing what has been done or a new way of doing better what has already been done. So if you want to talk about treating cancer, you want to hit it hard, you want to treat it fast. And why not do that by giving chemotherapy more often? And this study is looking specifically at shortening intervals between treatments by two weekly rather than three weekly, and also by treating with one drug after another rather than two drugs at the same time. The sequential treatment, which they mention in the title, is kind of a, a one-two punch. This is a, a very big study. We're looking at 21,000 women who've presented with breast cancers. 21,537 to be exact. They say they've managed to get the individualized patient data from 16 randomized trials, 98% of the women from these trials. So then you go through their data from all these different trials, looking at different ways of doing increased dose density. Some were doing faster, some were doing bigger hits, some were doing this sequence treatment that they mentioned. You put all that together, you sift through the data to try and find out a way in which they agree. And the agreement boils down to that it works. Increased dose density for chemotherapy is better at treating cancer and is just as tolerable as previous chemotherapy regimens. The figures show that disease recurrence, 10-year mortality and overall survival are all significantly improved on two-weekly versus three-weekly treatments. The experience of negative side effects was really only very slightly higher. I mean, I think it's uh, two or three percentage points. So really, for the sake of having a much better rate of recurrence, mortality, overall survival is worth it, I think, on the uh, looking at the numbers alone. And they do note that if you try and offset some of those uh, toxic 
effects with hematopoietic growth factor support. Basically, you give them something to keep their blood cells regenerating, keep them moving, because you don't want to kill the patient before you kill the cancer. And yeah, you can have for the same toxicity a much more successful cancer treatment in the short term and much more improved 10-year mortality, down 20% to 17%. And it's quite reassuring to know as well that looking at the different sorts of tumours that are involved in this, the different sizes and grades of tumours, ones with different ER status and HER2 status. In the results, they say proportional reductions in recurrence with dose-dense chemotherapy were similar and highly significant in ER-positive and ER-negative disease. ER-positive, ER-negative. On the cell surface, we mentioned earlier, there are some things which are expressed in the cancer cells, some things which are suppressed in cancer cells, some things which should turn up to make targets. One of those happens to be estrogen receptor. In English, it's spelt with an O, but everyone's agreed on calling it ER for short. And being a cancer of the breast, you see a lot of this in ovarian cancer as well. Targeting estrogen receptors and hormone receptors, uh, which comes under HR positive or human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, HER2 for short, these are basically ways of hitting the hormonal systems associated with breast and ovarian tissue, which then go out of control in cancers. So where these studies are talking about these sort of statuses, whether something's positive or negative, something is the the sort of molecular makeup of the tumour, which affects, in many cases, how you're able to treat it. And it's quite reassuring to know that this is a treatment option that can be helpful across the board. In fact, anyone listening to this who has experienced cancer personally or in their family might have heard the phrase triple negative breast cancer be thrown around. That means that the cancer cell does not express three most common or most actionable uh, cell surface targets, which are ER, we mentioned, HER2, and HR. So if you've not got those three mutations, which have been very successfully treated with hormone and endocrine therapy, then that makes it harder to treat the cancers which is why this research from Professor Gray and all of the team from a great number of universities uh, figuring out that you can just, like, chemotherapy is the shotgun approach. It's not very specific, but boy, howdy, can it work? And doing that better, doing that for a shorter period of time with more tolerable toxicity, you're doing good. The next study, which I'd like to talk about, is uh, something a little bit on the opposite side, trying to in fact reduce the amount of cancer therapy that patients were receiving so they don't have to deal with all the toxicity, all the duration of treatment, and trying to get things down from as long as they have been to a shorter, more tailored experience, just treating as much as you have to rather than going in all guns blazing. So this one is looking at a follow-up treatment that is given to breast cancer patients after the initial surgical and chemotherapy treatments. This study is looking at 3,484 women with postmenopausal stage 1 to 3 hormone receptor positive early breast cancers who received either two years or five years of anastrozole as an extended adjuvant therapy after five years of endocrine treatment. Yep, so breaking down some of those terms, 
women who have gone through menopause. This actually does affect quite a lot of the incidence of breast cancer, the ways that you can treat that breast cancer as well, because again, it all comes down to growth and hormones. And oestrogen is particularly involved in the development of breast cancers. That's one of the reasons why, for example, being overweight is related to higher incidence of breast cancer because fat tissue produces oestrogens. And certain birth control methods have been linked to breast cancer risk as well. Yes, it's um, one of the ones that they tell you about when you first turn up at the doctors asking for the pill is that it will increase your risk of getting breast cancer eventually. Stage one to three is how early or late you catch the cancer. The more advanced it is, the more stages it's gone through. The more difficult it then is to treat. Hormone receptor positive, we were talking about hormones and hormone receptors earlier. And uh, anastrozole is one way of treating hormone receptor positive breast cancer by basically shutting off estrogen production in your own body. It does this by hitting the enzymes involved in estrogen production. These are called aromatase enzymes. And aromatase inhibitors, things that inhibit aromatase production of estrogen, are one of the go-to ways of tackling breast cancer. It's all kind of tying together, I hope. Yeah, hopefully as we go through more of them, it'll start to produce a more clear picture about the the ways people are targeting these things. This This study is looking at disease-free survival primarily. Like you say, three and a half thousand women receiving adjuvant follow-up aromatase inhibitors after tamoxifen treatment. Tamoxifen being a go-to cancer drug as well, or a go-to breast cancer drug. It's been fantastically successful in improving survival and reducing cancer recurrence and cancer risk for people who've experienced it before. And what you can do, what people have been doing, is giving them one milligram anastrozole per day for five years. This kind of this maintenance in endocrine and hormone management a little bit every day, just keep it coming. But the question was, well, can we reduce that from five years to, let's say, two years? So that's what they did. They had some people received two years' worth of treatment, and they were looking also in terms of uh, adherence. The adherence was a tiny bit better in patients on the two years of treatment compared to the five years. And you take away three years' worth of potential treatments, and what you get is no difference. None at all, really, in terms of disease and survival events. Having two years of this follow-up treatment is cheaper and more tolerable. And you do get the lower incidence of the negative side effects of this sort of treatment, such as getting bone fractures. I'm assuming this is to do with the way hormonal changes post-menopause cause osteoporosis in a lot of women, uh, basically bone-wasting if you're lowering the estrogens in the body even further, that's going to aggravate that. Which is why you're working with the postmenopausal women, people for whom falls and bone breakages are a severe mortality risk, then yeah, just damage limitation in that regard is a pretty key way of managing treatment as well. So five years of anastrozole versus two save yourself the time and the money you can get away with too. And maybe in follow-up trials, I'll be looking at if we can get this down to one, or maybe if there's some kind of hallmark of the tumor, that means that maybe some people could get away without this whole series of treatments following 
the five years of treatment which they had to go through in the first place before entering this follow-up period of anastrozole. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, trying to dial it down a little bit, get it just right, not too much, not too little, just, you know, the Goldilocks zone of cancer treatment. All right, it's enough to do the job without making you really violently unwell. And this is a very similar story, not quite identical, to one which was looking at reducing treatment with adjuvant trastuzumab, which is again a follow-up. Trastuzumab here is a HER2-targeting treatment going after that. A monoclonal antibody at that, so it's an immune cell that has been programmed to hit this receptor on breast cancers. So that should be a fairly low-impact treatment in the first place if it's only programmed to target those cells anyway. You can get a little bit of overspill, but fingers crossed they could get their treatments reduced from one year down to just nine weeks. This was the research of Heike Jonsu in a very similar style of the previous trial was looking at getting things down from a much longer treatment to something that could be more tolerated, could be cheaper. Again, the international standard is 12 months, but the optimal treatment is, again, unknown. So the treatments that patients were receiving was three cycles of three-weekly docetaxel plus trastuzumab, followed by chemotherapy, which is you know the treatment combination that they get. And then, after this first period, three cycles, three weeks, the nine-week period, some patients stopped getting treatments and got nothing more. Some patients continued for a full year. They got another three weekly cycles, and then another three weekly cycles, and then another three weekly cycles, getting them up to the full year. Mm -hmm. There was some variation in terms of who was getting what else. Some people were given radiation or endocrine therapy. This was done by physician's choice. Just the attending doctor for each individual patient might have had to cater for some flexibility, uh, radiation or endocrine therapy, then that's up to them. We're just looking at the trastuzumab element here. And what they found was after nine weeks, it was almost, 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 like one percentage point off equal. But that one percentage point was just enough to make it not quite statistically significant enough. Mm. Which is disappointing. You'd hope with uh, more than 2,000 patients participating in the study that you would get a significant result, but it's... I mean, to not get a statistically significant result does suggest that it doesn't actually, um, it's not making a huge difference having much less of it, of the treatment. Well, that's the thing. If it's just missing out by 1% and you've spared them month after month of going through the treatment of the toxicity, of the cost as well, because trastuzumab isn't cheap. Mm -hmm. If you can spare them all additional cost for something that is only just a little bit worse, not to mention the fact that it improves your cardiac function not going through extra doses of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. A difference of 90.5% and 88.0%. It's so close, but just off, which I think is disappointing from a clinical sense, but also this information shouldn't be disregarded out of hand. I think there's many patients, many doctors who will look at this and say, okay, there's definitely room for more investigation here and, yeah, recommending the shorter course of treatment if 
you've got a patient who might not cope with the full year. Or at least just being aware that after nine months, you might have some flexibility in starting to dial things down, space them out a bit. And maybe there'll be some Mm -hmm. research, someone trying to say, well, maybe 10 weeks instead of the nine weekly cycle. Maybe 10 weeks is what we need to just push us up in statistical significance and save an extra 44 weeks of trips to the hospital, of treatment, of adverse events, of cost of the drug again. I think they're almost there, very almost, but not enough to be practice changing across the board yet. Definitely. So yeah, still dialing it in, finding that Goldilocks zone, treating your patient Mm -hmm. an individual human being with an individual human disease. Seeing as we're sat here, well, sat very, very far away, talking about treating (laughs) as a human being, a good way of finding out how your patient is doing is asking them. An even better way of finding out how your patient is doing is taking just a couple of drops of their blood and checking in on them on a molecular level to see if the disease, which you're pretty sure you cured them of five years ago, is showing any signs of returning. And using just a few drops of blood to determine if you have cancer in your breast is way less invasive than mammograms, than sentinel biopsies, than all the ways you have to go around digging, looking for cancer cells, if you can pick them up in the blood when you're just going in for you know a regular checkup. And this is the whole point between what's called liquid biopsies, where you don't have to go and take a chunk of someone. You just get their blood sample or any other sample that's fluid, come to think of it. You run it through a cell assay looking for circulating tumor cells, CTCs for short. And if they have any tumor cells in their blood, then that's a very good indication they have tumor cells somewhere else in their body, which are shedding these off. You pick them up, you can act early and hopefully do as much good as you can. No, I think the thing that gets me on this one is um, how the numbers stack up. There's uh, 546 patients who have provided blood samples yielding a result that there were circulating tumour cells showed up in that sample. Only 16 of those subsequently had a recurrence of their um, breast cancers. So, I mean, 546 patients with circulating cells, 16 with a recurrence of their cancer, that doesn't seem like it's the most useful way of checking if a recurrence was likely with that difference in the numbers. Well, it's more that we're doing really very well with treating breast cancer. Like it's had a huge public uh, push behind developing treatments and public awareness of breast cancer as well. And the five years of, if you've not relapsed in the first five years, then you're doing pretty well. The most relapses actually come in the next five years. The five to 10 year range is where disease recurrence is likely to come rather than, you know, the weeks or months that you see in other diseases. So if you are doing this blood test at five years, the chance of you picking up a circulating tumor cell, that might be quite small. But the relapse rate of 20% in the positive tests as opposed to the 1% in the negative tests. Occurrence rate per person year in the positive versus negative groups is 19.6% versus 1% respectively. So a 1 in 5 chance of detection versus a 1 in 100 chance of detection. The test works, but... 546 patients is not a huge trial, but 
personally looking at those numbers, I would want more investigation um, before that was rolled out as a major thing. I think I'd prefer to stick to the same stuff we're advised to do to monitor ourselves for potential breast cancers, checking for lumps, checking for um, you know unusual discomfort or changes in size and shape, that sort of thing, as opposed to if we find this, you you might. This next story comes back to something that you mentioned earlier, whilst we were talking about hormones and receptors, uh, the effect of obesity and fat cells on hormone expression and activity. Very much the amount of fat in your body is linked to all kinds of diseases, including diabetes, including cancer, and men and women. It's reassuring to note, especially very many people find as they age and stuff slows down or they can move around a bit less, you do gradually gain weight. That's a, a thing that happens to lots of us. And it's reassuring to know that the group who gained weight didn't actually have significantly worse chances of developing breast cancer. But those who lost some weight, at least 5% and even more so when it's at least 15% weight loss, the improvement in your chances of getting breast cancer is, I mean, we've got hazard ratio 0.88. Hazard ratio is basically a comparison of two groups, how well they're doing, the bigger the hazard ratio, the bigger the difference is. One is no difference, 1.5 or 0.5 says that one is doing much better than the other, so 0.88, one group doing a bit better than the other. There's a lot of statistics in biology, something which they definitely did not make clear to me when I was doing math GCSE. I mean, there is a lot of statistics in all science. I think that's one of the things that makes it a useful way of looking at the world is that we apply mathematical tests to things to see if they're important. So yeah, um, a 0.88 hazard ratio sounds like a pretty good improvement in uh, your risk of getting cancer. And the one note they make is that whilst weight gain is not linked to overall breast cancer risk, it does come with an increased triple negative breast cancer risk. So those are those ones that don't respond to those easy targets. Yeah. Or don't have those easy targets um, that respond to our, our sort of primary treatment options. Which again comes back into that tangled web of hormones and fat. Which leaves us with, I think, time for just one more story. Mm -hmm. One which I would save for like the joke stories we put at the end of an episode. <laughs> but I've spoken to this woman and the science she's doing is genuine. The research is exacting. And even though no one in the press conference this morning could really quite believe their ears, the numbers are there. So acupuncture helps inflammation for breast cancer patients treated with aromatase inhibitors. Acupuncture. I mean, I think one of the reasons acupuncture is lumped in with um, some of the kind of the alternative therapies like homeopathy that don't have, you know, any scientific backing at all um, is basically that we're not sure of the mechanisms by which it works. But I think pressure points are definitely a thing. So it's not... It doesn't seem as completely unreasonable to expect a result for acupuncture as compared to you know, homeopathy or trying to treat something by psychically manipulating your energy fields or something. 
yeah, during the conference, she was asked, like, what is the, the mechanism of action here? What is the target of what they clarify as true acupuncture? And she said, well, I'm not an acupuncturist. I, I didn't do the acupuncture. I just got the data. Uh, the acupuncture professionals who were working with were following meridian lines. And there was a definite like, a shrug across the room of, oh, well. Is that not an actual established feature of human development, though, that these are the points where patches of cells in fetal development join? I thought that was what a meridian line yeah. was. I thought Glastonbury was built on them. Oh, no, those are ley lines. Uh, oh, well, acupuncture doesn't cure cancer. Very emphatic about that point. Acupuncture will not cure your cancer. It won't stop you getting cancer. It won't make your cancer better. What it might do, based on the results from these 236 women... Is it might improve some of your side effects. This is looking at... Patients who are suffering from joint symptoms, joint swellings, joint pain as a side effect of their aromatase inhibitor therapy. Aromatase inhibitors, I think we mentioned them earlier, whilst we were stating terms, they block aromatase enzymes. So again, we come back to anastrozole amongst other drugs like exomestane and leprosol. They had patients receiving either true acupuncture one um, was sham acupuncture, thinner, shallow needles, not at the right place. At sort of specifically not the right places. So they, yeah, I think the, the sham acupuncturists were provided with the maps of the points where the true acupuncture would be administered and they were avoiding them. And then a control arm of people who were just on the waiting list, basically. Whilst there was the expected placebo effect of people receiving sham acupuncture having a better pain score than those who are just on the waiting list. People who received true acupuncture did better than the sham acupuncture and did significantly better than the waiting list. And this was looking at a bunch of different ways of scoring pain, joint stiffness, all the ways that you might want to measure, and it worked. Yeah, and it's important to note with regard to the adverse side effects you might be experiencing from these added treatments. More patients experienced bruising on the true acupuncture compared to the sham acupuncture. But then if the uh, the fake acupuncturists were using shallower penetration with their needles, that's not unexpected. Yeah, I wish I had a punchline to round this one out, but... I guess maybe don't tell Richard Dawkins? <laughs> I mean, if you can present him the science that shows that it works, he, in theory, should swallow his pride, right? I mean, that's what we're all supposed to do if we're trying to be good practicing scientists, is if someone presents you with the evidence, you go, well, I guess I've changed my mind then. It looks like you're right. That would be the noble scientific thing to do. I just hope Dr. Dawn Hirschman is ready to take that fight out into science communication. It's a somewhat hostile environment to pseudoscience. But, you know, if the numbers check out, it's just science. Looking at this, the numbers do look pretty good. So best of luck to her. It is a sample of um, only 226 patients. So you probably do want to look into some slightly bigger samples. Well, we'll have to wait until she gets back to us 
and I think I have to go back and do like the rest of my job now. Ah, what a shame. I know, right? I, meanwhile, um, eight hours in the future, I'm going to eat dinner. So there's that. Well, okay. So if you do have any questions, you can find us at Eureka Nerdcast. Comments, ideas, needles. No, not needles. Don't send your needles to Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. Do send your iTunes reviews, though. That would be nice. And reviews on any other podcast platform of your choice, because it really is a wonderful way to share us with people you don't even know. And I think we'll probably take Christmas weekend off and see you all again sometime in 2018. So with that, that's goodbye from me. And howdy from me. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.